4 is where we're going to be centering our time of study this morning, Esther chapter 4. It is good to see you this morning, and uh, we have some visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, we want you to feel welcome, even if we may not shake your hand for uh, obvious reasons, but uh, we want you to know that we're glad that you're here. Appreciate you coming to, uh, to visit with us. Well, I'm getting a note that my microphone is... Well, it wasn't on mute, but, you know, uh, we always had a joke um, when I preached in the Dallas area that uh, the, the guys that would give me the mic, uh, if I had to flip any buttons or anything like that, I would mess it up because it was an Aggie joke because I'm an Aggie. Uh, but uh, here I have to flip one button, and sometimes I mess up that one button, so appreciate the patience of the sound guys. Uh, Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, and I, I want, what I want to do for our time is to take a story here that I think will give us some insight into some of the things that we're experiencing and, uh, and working through as, as a culture, as a society, and as Christians. In Esther 4 and verse 13, it says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai asks an awesome question. He says, who knows if you haven't reached the position you have reached, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther is written during a time when the Jewish people are in Persian captivity. And some of the Israelites there are elevated to positions of great status, including Esther, who at this moment is the queen. And Mordecai asks the question, what if... This has been God's plan all along. What if God has been at work to bring us all to this precise moment in time so that he can act through us? What if God made us for this moment? And I've been thinking about this text in light of the situation that we're living through because we are living in strange days. This is an odd time. So we've spent the last several months staying home and wearing masks and shutting down businesses because of a severe and rapidly spreading virus. And we have endured an economic collapse that is at least partly related to that, is now officially a recession. Many people have been furloughed, and hours have been cut, and some have lost jobs and income. Schools have shut down. Economics and culture have just kind of been canceled for the last few months, and that's been weird. And in the midst of all of that, while we're all quarantined, of course... The police in Minneapolis have been charged, uh, several police officers have been charged with the murder of a black man in their custody. And the video of that, maybe because we're all sitting at home, has sort of gone viral. And of course, it is always tremendously disturbing to watch a video like that video, and it has sparked uh, widespread outrage and has crystallized the issue of racism and disproportionate maltreatment of blacks by police, by the justice system. And so there are now regular protests protests during a pandemic, protests now that some of which have gotten out of hand and there's been looting and violence and destruction of property, including last night, by the way, I saw on the news that uh, in Atlanta there's uh, all kinds of unrest and, and disturbances there over, over yet another um, issue among uh, blacks and the treatment by police. Meanwhile, as Christians, we're meeting in two separate groups and we can't shake each other's hands. And the question that I have is, how do, you, how do you live in a time like that? I think we're all asking that. What, what are we supposed to do? How do we respond to all of this? And Mordecai's question, what, what if 
you didn't come to the kingdom for a time like this. Makes me wonder, what if we are not victims of our times? What if we are exactly where we should be? Exactly where God wants us to be in a time and place to advance his will in the historical moment in which we live. You think about all the privileges that we have as Americans and as Christians. God has given us unique blessings. Jesus tells his disciples that you are a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. That you have an influence over people and a place in which God can use you in the society in which you live. And we even live, we are blessed by this. We live in a society where we are free to speak our minds without fear of the government coming and, and disciplining us for thinking and saying the wrong thing. We're even free to protest things that the government does that we feel are unjust without threatening the government. That has not been true in almost any society in history. That is a tremendous blessing. So how do we use these blessings to the glory and the purposes of God? I want to suggest to you that God made you for this moment. God made all of us and placed us here just for a time like this. And I want us to think about how that could be true, how God could put us here for such a time as this. Now, I have an open door here because I believe what we see here, instead of being a victim idea, is instead an opportunity for us as the people of God to advance God's purposes. And I want us to think a little bit from this story about how we can do that. So let's get a little background on the story that we're studying. Mordecai and Esther are related. They're something like cousins, but Esther's parents have died and Mordecai raises Esther and the queen of Persia, incidentally, is dismissed. And so the king starts looking for a new queen. And suddenly Esther, through various means, mainly the fact that she's beautiful, becomes the queen of Persia. Mordecai also gets a promotion because now he sits at the king's gate. It's not really clear what that means. It's some kind of maybe a lower judicial role. But what happens that is sort of the crux of the story is that there is a wicked counselor named Haman who has somehow gets the king to tell everybody when Haman walks by, everybody has to bow down. And Mordecai refuses to bow down. So he refuses, not even, even though the king tells him to, he refuses. And that makes Haman furious. Haman always sort of has a chip on his shoulder, particularly about Mordecai. And so what Haman decides is when Mordecai won't bow down, he decides, you know what? I'm not just going to punish Mordecai. I want to eradicate all the Jews. And so he gets the king, kind of finagles out of the king, the promise that all the Jews will be attacked and killed. And that is the problem in the book of Esther. What's going to happen to the Jewish people, the people of God, who now, I mean, the king of the greatest empire in the world, who is in charge of all of them, has decided you're going to die. Well, in Esther 4 and verse 1, it says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree were reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the Jews are all devastated. You can only imagine this is a tragedy. After all, what can they do? How do you resist the king's edict? So what Mordecai decides is, I'm going to try to convince Esther to go talk to the king. So in verse 8, it says, Mordecai also gave him, this is a servant, a, a eunuch, gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So he says, Esther, you need to go plead on behalf of your people. Now, the problem is that the king is not always available. 
even to the queen. Unless the king summons you, you don't just go talk to the king. So in verse 11, he talks about that. This is Esther. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So here's the issue. The, the king of Persia set up a system by which people couldn't always come in. That was to prevent assassination because, you know, you got random people coming in, you get the wrong guy, and suddenly you're dead. Or to prevent someone dominating the king's time. The king wants to set his schedule, so the king will tell you when you come in, you don't just go in. And yet that presents a problem for Esther. If I go in, there's a penalty of death if he's not happy to see me. So there's a risk to my life even to, to approach the king about this. So Mordecai challenges Esther, and this is the crux of what we're going to study. Look at verse 12 with me. And then Mordecai told Esther, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai had them reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we've got the story here. And this, this pivotal moment is what I want to focus on for a few minutes. And I want to ask the question, if God made you for this moment, what is it that God's people do in moments like these? First of all, uh, God's people listen to concerns in moments like these. See, Esther hears about the king's decree because the word has gotten around, but Mordecai sends the letter to her himself. He sends far more information than what she actually needs. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. Here's the whole copy, the whole message issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. So, Esther, just in case you don't understand it, this man's going to come and explain it all to you so you know exactly everything that's going on. But Mordecai's concern, please listen, Mordecai's concern is that because it doesn't directly involve Esther, she might not pay as much attention to it as otherwise. So he says this in verse 13, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So you hear what he's saying. Don't think you're going to escape just because others might not know. Esther at this time, they don't know she's a Jew. So you might think, oh, I can escape. But he says, don't think you'll escape. Listen, even though you're not directly involved. His fear is that because it doesn't touch her as directly as everyone else, she might try to wilt at this pivotal moment. God's people listen to concerns. This is a concern that might not directly affect Esther, and yet she listens, she hears, because there's something amiss. I want to propose to you that just because something doesn't touch us directly doesn't mean it's not real. Just because we haven't experienced something or aren't threatened by something doesn't mean that other people are not. And the reason we need to listen is because there are concerns that we may not know about if we don't listen. And I want to remind you that this is a biblical priority. 
I'm going to show you a series of passages here. I just want you to read through them. And I want you to remember, just because we're not turning to each of these, these are every one passages from God's word that stress the need to listen in times like these. This is Proverbs 21 and verse 13. It says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So the idea is poor people are crying and we can close our ears. We can ignore it. After all, it doesn't affect us in the same way it affects them. Maybe they're exaggerating. Maybe they're poor because they deserve to be poor. And so it's very easy for us to find ways to turn our ears away and not listen. Proverbs 31 and verse 9 says, Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That there are times when we need to step up even though we are stepping up for others and defend their rights, and make sure that they're not being trampled on and abused. And so that is a biblical priority. This one is interesting. It's a little more challenging. Uh, It's Proverbs 24. It's actually verses 10 to 12. It says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So it's kind of a complex passage. But the idea is that there are people who are being taken away to death that he says rescue and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now, if they're being punished or they're being killed because they've done something wrong and they deserve it, then they wouldn't need rescuing. The, the implication here is something has gone wrong and now we have to step in. And then there is the possibility, and this is what intrigues me about the passage, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? In other words, you you can't plead ignorance in situations where God knows whether you really were ignorant. God knows what you knew and what you did nothing about. God is not to be tricked by this. And the idea is, if we know that there are concerns and that there are people who are telling us there is a problem here and we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear, however you want to phrase that, and we ignore it, God knows God's people are not that way. In fact, the the very common motif in Scripture is of a cry that comes out for those who are oppressed. And that cry we can either listen to or turn our ears away from. Remember how God says that Abel's blood cries out from the earth? There is something evil that has been done. And there is a cry that comes from the victim. This is Exodus 22 and verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. That's the idea of a foreigner living in your land. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, listen to this, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. I hope you hear God's frustration, God's anger. When we ignore people who are being oppressed and we kind of become party to the oppression. James 5 and verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James 5 and verse 4. So, the question is, do we hear other people? Do we hear when people tell us, I have an issue. There is a problem. Something has gone wrong. Do we hear our brothers and sisters? Do we acknowledge that there are other kinds of experiences than our own? Do we have compassion on people by actually being willing 
to listen. We don't know it all. And there is a pressing need, especially for white Christians in the environment in which we're living to actually listen. I want to I share this with you. Um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to share this story with you uh, for any kind of, to score any kind of points. I, I want to show you how this worked for me in a situation where I did not realize how much I was not hearing. Um, I had a, in high school, I had a, a black friend and we hung out quite a bit. We were very close. And uh, one night he was at my house in a small town in Texas until fairly late. He got in his car and, and drove away. And one block away from my house, he was pulled over by the police because someone had called him and said, called the police and said there was a suspicious vehicle in that area. And uh, when I talked to this friend, he said, no, it didn't just happen one time. He said it happened four or five times. To be at my house and to be on the wrong side of town and to have the police called on him. And, and what, what, I, what I felt when I heard that from a great friend of mine, I was shocked because that's never happened to me. I've never had the experience of being told I was on the wrong side of town, of being pulled over by the police for being suspicious, of having people call the cops on me when I wasn't really doing anything. He was living in a different world than I was. And in that moment, I realized everything he had told me about that, I had kind of brushed aside. Kind of said, ah, oh, you're exaggerating. The question is, just because I might not deal with the police or with my life in the same way, doesn't mean that doesn't happen. And if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, I need to be compassionate to people who are telling me things may look different for some than they do for you. And my concern is just like Mordecai's, that I might say, well, since the... Just like Mordecai's, that since this doesn't affect me directly, I might just say, you know what? Not my problem. That's what Mordecai is concerned. Esther's going to say. And he says, don't be that way. That's not what God's people do. We don't just ignore concerns. We listen. The second thing here is God's people pursue justice. Look in Esther 4 and verse 8 with me. In verse, verse 8, it says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. I want you to hear that Esther is not begging for herself. She is going on behalf of her fellow Jews. And the problem here is that her fellow Jews have done nothing that deserves destruction. Nothing. And yet they are now being targeted. So even if it's not herself that's going to be killed, she goes on behalf of others. I want to remind you that justice is a primary concern of the people of God. We seek and pursue justice in our personal lives and in every relationship and situation in which we find ourselves. The reason is justice reflects the nature of God. He is a just God. And every attempt at justice is an attempt to in some way reflect God's nature. So I want to show you a few of these passages. These are particularly priorities in the prophets. You'll see this is Isaiah 1. When you spread out your hands, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I want you to notice that I think sometimes we brush right by that. Do you see what God is saying? 
God is saying, if you want to do good, then you need to pay attention to the evils that are going on around you and do what you can. Now, you might not be able to correct every problem, but do what you can. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, look at the injustices around you and say something, do something, seek, pursue justice. Jeremiah 22, 3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Justice. Amos 5, 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Micah 6 and verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Notice these are personal things. This is not talking about a society. He is saying, this is what God's people do. They do justice and they love mercy and they walk humbly with their God. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It could be that we reach a point where we have neglected the weightier matters because we are not pursuing justice in the world in which we live. This heart for justice is not political. I am not saying that justice is a Republican or Democrat issue. It's not. We want justice in our courts, no matter who is on trial. We want justice for all people, not just the privileged people, not just the people of our race, not just the rich. We want people to be treated fairly in everyday events and fairly when they're accused of wrongdoing. We want justice for those who have been killed by police unjustly. And we want justice for police officers who have been killed. We want justice for all people. That's the, the goal. That's the idea. We want justice. And while we understand that there will never be perfect justice here, that doesn't mean we don't pursue it and work for it and that we don't say something about injustices that we do see. But when we, we say pursue justice, well, that sounds, that sounds great. Well, what do we mean? It has a million applications. And we may decide that we want to protest for that justice. That's certainly our choice. We may decide that Justice means we need to change some things about ourselves, about the way we engage with other people. Maybe we need to say some things that we wouldn't ordinarily say on behalf of others who we feel like are suffering injustices. But it may be that we say, you know, injustice may not be so much about the courts. It may just be about the way we're interacting with other people, that we're being unfair or unequal in some way. And so we're going to change the way we think and talk, the casual racism that exists in our lives. You know, the, the way we separate ourselves from people of other races. And we say, you know what, that's unfair. I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to seek justice. But it will mean standing with people of all races at different times in pursuit of God's priority of justice, particularly justice that's meted out by government that is enforcing the law. We all want that. All people want that. And Christians should be in the front lines of saying justice is our priority because justice is God's priority. So that's what I see in this story. The third thing is God's people point people to God. I want you to look in verse 14 as the story unfolds. Verse 14, Mordecai says, For if you, Esther, keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want you to notice Mordecai's confidence. He says, if you don't do anything, relief and deliverance will arise from some other place. In other words, God's going to do something. And he can use you, or if you decide you're not in for it, God will use somebody else. God's going to deliver. Now, he doesn't mention God by name. But it's there in the text. Who else would orchestrate all of this so that this moment is right here for Esther to do this work? So God's going to save his people one way or another. But you need to be sure that you're doing your part in reaching out to God. And then what does Esther do? Esther finally makes the decision and she says, go tell everybody to fast. Why, why fast? Fasting is tied to prayer. Fasting is about a way we appeal to God. Fasting, just for its own sake, does no good. But in Scripture, fasting is tied to prayer as a way to appeal to God. So she is saying, everybody go home and nobody for three days eat or drink anything. Because we need to ask God for his help. Because I'm about to do something risky and I need God on my side. So yes, this is a time for action and Esther is going to act. But it is also a time for pointing back to God remembering God, asking God for strength, asking God for help. And so when we live in a time like the one we are living in, we have to remember that as much as we listen and as much as we pursue justice, there is an ultimate goal that we're seeking. That no matter what happens on earth, we will continue to seek and it will continue to be the priority for us. And we want to be sure that when we interact with people, we are showing them that what really matters most and the reason all these other things matter is because of the God behind them. This is 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He says that your reaction to opposition and persecution is going to lead people to ask questions. They're going to want to know, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you have such hope? And he says, when they do ask you that, you be ready to answer them. You be ready to point them back to God. Tell them why you have hope. This is a time in which people are desperate for something to hope for. It's a discouraging time, particularly. We don't have any guarantees about how things are going to turn out in our society. We don't have any guarantees about this virus if it's going to get better or worse, are we going to get a vaccine? How long are we going to live like this? We don't have any of those things. And so it's very easy to get pessimistic and down. But we have a hope because we have something greater that we are leaning on and looking forward to. And he says, when they see that in you, they're going to ask you, why? Why are you acting this way in such a weird and difficult time? Point them to God. Give them a reason. Christians deal with a crisis differently from the world. That doesn't mean we don't get upset. It means that we have a hope that goes beyond what we're suffering in the moment. Christians are different. We don't need the government in order to trust that things are going to be good or will be taken care of. We don't even rely on our own limited power. We know that what we can do is just not that much. But that's not what we're relying on. We know it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. God can act in any circumstance. We serve a God who holds the world in his hand, and that makes us react differently to a crisis. And I want to suggest to you 
that this is the point at which we take a step beyond the discourse that's going on in our world. Because our world focuses on this immediate crisis and this immediate issue. But there is a bigger story about how we conduct ourselves in the world. So, for example, when people begin to talk about human rights and what rights people have and black lives matter and different kinds of lives matter, the question becomes then, well, why? Why do lives matter at all? And that's a question that a humanistic perspective can't answer. Why do lives matter? They don't know, but we know. All lives matter because all people are created in the image of God. Because all people will live forever. And we matter because of that. And we treat one another in a certain way because of that. Because the image of God is on every human. There's conflict and struggle among people at all times. In every society at all times. Why? Have you ever asked why? Why do people not be able to get along? Anywhere, ever. We know why. It's because of sin. In fact, we know why, not just intellectually, we know why emotionally, because we have seen sin in ourselves and we've seen that conflict in ourselves. And so we can then speak to these kinds of disagreements and struggles and say, you know what really helps me process this is the biblical framework, the biblical worldview. I understand this because I know God. And so we cry out to God and we lean on God for the answers to our problems, my personal problems, the problems in my family, in my church, in my society, because God is the answer. But my hope is bigger and deeper and stronger that even if I am treated poorly in this life, even if I die prematurely from a disease, I have hope of eternal life that is bigger than all of this. And so I trust God to intervene, but even if he doesn't intervene, I still trust him. And that's what our world needs right now. Our world needs to be pointed to the God behind the world, not just to the problems that exist in it. And the last thing I want to show you from this story is that God's people act with courage. Look in verse 16. Listen to Esther. Esther says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Isn't that awesome? Esther has the guts to say, I'll I'll put my life on the line. It's worth it. Now, that doesn't mean she's foolish. If you know anything about the book of Esther, you know that she concocts a pretty elaborate plan about how she's going to work this out and convince the king. But it's not that she's foolish. It's that she is not ruled by her fears. She's courageous. If I perish... I perish. We may not realize how much of our current situation is rooted in fear. There is fear of a virus. There is fear of racial injustice. There's fear of looting and rioting. There's fear of what's going to happen to our country. There is fear. Will our president get reelected? There's fear. Will our president get reelected on both sides? There is fear. There's fear that we won't have law and order to the degree that we need. And what happens when we're afraid is that it affects our behavior. We act differently when we're afraid. It makes us lash out in anger. It makes us act in unloving ways. It keeps us from listening. It distracts us from the opportunities we have to serve 
in our everyday lives because we're suddenly just paralyzed by our fear. God's people are not a people of fear, brethren. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know these stories. You know about Esther. Esther saying, if I perish, I perish. You know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll give you one more chance, bow down or you're going in the furnace. And you remember what they say? They say, you know what, our, our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, but if not, we're not going to bow down. The courage to say, I'm going to do what's right no matter what. I'm not going to live afraid. So, please understand me. I am not saying that we should be irresponsible in how we respond to this virus. I am not saying that this unrest is unfounded. I am saying that Christians act with courage when things get hard. This is the time when things are hard and people will know, do you really believe what you believe? Or are you just afraid and scared even to say what you believe? We believe that the end of our physical lives is not the end. And that makes us not live in fear, but act with courage. So we have the courage to speak up and to say what we believe and to take people to God and to take heat for our faith. Please hear me. I did not say take heat for our political convictions. That's not what I mean. I did not say take heat for our random opinions. But we take heat for our faith because we act with courage. We have the courage to risk our reputations and our money and our health and our lives to do what we believe is right. So I want to encourage us, don't be timid, don't be weak, don't be afraid. This is a moment where courage is needed in all of these arenas. God made you for this moment, so be bold, be courageous. Well, somebody's going to ask me, okay, well, that, that all preaches fine. We got through that story, everything. Just what do you want us to do? Well, I'm glad that you asked. In our response, of course, you can see, we need to be listeners. We need to be pursuing justice. We need to be pointing people to God. We need to be acting bravely. But I'm not advocating a, a particular specific action. I want us to begin to ask the question, what can I do to help in this situation? What can I do when the world is paralyzed by a virus? What can I do? When our society is in turmoil, what can I do? We are not victims of our situation, but God can use us in this moment. Reading this story makes me believe that God doesn't just want us to huddle up and hope that this storm passes. What if we haven't come into the world for such a time as this? So I want you to ask the question, who do you know? What situations are you in that you can help in some way in the current situation? Do you know somebody who makes hiring choices that you can talk to and encourage about this? Do you know somebody who makes choices about lending? Do you know someone who's a police officer that you can talk to and encourage 
and talk very frankly about some of these concerns while also supporting the importance of law in our society. How can you help in some small way be a light in the corner where you are? Or maybe that's just when we're talking about race, acknowledging some of the issues in your own heart and some of the ways you might hurt others without even realizing it. I think sometimes we think that if we don't have active animosity towards people of another race, that we're not racist or we're not acting in a racist way. But sometimes we don't realize that we're treating other people differently. This may be something we just need to face. But perhaps most of all, we can reach out and cross boundaries and we can involve people in our lives and in our social plans that are not like us, no matter what race they're from. And that will be both enormously challenging and enormously beneficial. Try to understand people. Try to talk to them. In some small way, you can help. Who do you know? What can you do to help for those who are battling a pandemic? You know people that are really susceptible, at risk for this virus? We all do. Can we help them? Encourage them? Many people are, are battling. I mean, we've been going at this for, for several months. It's a long time to be completely alone. I'm talking about people in our congregation that we know we're having a hard time. Or maybe there are needs that they have that we can help meet. Maybe there are people we know that are on the front lines, that are doing the medical work, and are just worn out. Maybe even suspicious of other people because everybody looks like they might have the virus. Maybe we know people who are, are un unemployed or are hard up because they're losing their income. And maybe there are some small ways that we can help. I, I, maybe that's a money thing. Maybe that's a kindness thing. I don't know. I'm asking you to think about what can I do? Instead of just saying, well, here are the headlines. Everything looks bad and worse and worse. To say, what can I do to be a man or woman of God where I am? That's what Esther does. That's what Mordecai does. They say, who do I know? How can I help? What can we do? Because maybe we're in the position we're in for such a time as this. I can't leave this without uh, finishing up the story. I don't want it to be a cliffhanger. Esther goes in before the king, and eventually she convinces the king that Haman has conspired all of this, and Haman is revealed to be the scoundrel that he is, and he is hanged on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. It is a story of how God saves the day through some key people who use their position and influence and faith to affect change. I think we all understand these are strange times, but we are not victims of them. God made us for this moment. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to be thoughtful about your word, your will for us, and the situation in which we're living. Father, I pray that you'll strengthen us as your people, that our hearts will not be troubled, but that we'll realize the importance we have to bear witness and to be a light to the world in a dark time. Father, I pray that you will encourage and strengthen your people, that we'll be listeners, that we'll be people not swayed by political considerations or racial considerations, but who seek your will and your will alone. 
And Father, I pray that you'll give us the boldness and the courage we need at times like these to speak up for you and point people to you. Father, we need your strength and we need your wisdom. I pray that you'll help us to be an encouragement to one another as we try to decide what is the best way to be a good influence on those around us. But Father, most of all, we ask that you will use us, that you will put us in situations that you know will be helpful to us and helpful to others, that you'll give us the wisdom and the awareness to see it, and that you'll give us the courage to speak. Father, we pray for your people all over the world, for those who are suffering and those who are afraid and those who are struggling. We pray for those who are suffering injustice and hardship. And Father, we pray that we can minister to them and help them. But most of all, Father, we pray that more and more people will come to an understanding of your will for them, your love for them, and what you've done for them in Jesus. And help us, Father, to be the agents of that change and tools in your hand. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who is ready to give their lives over to the Lord. And we want nothing more than to give you the opportunity to be right with the God because of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus came, lived as a man, lived a perfect life, and offered his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And the reason we're here, the reason we focus on God and we read God's word is because we've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Savior, God's Son. And because of that, we've given our lives over to him. We've been forgiven of our sins. And now we are new creatures in Christ. And that can happen to you. And we love nothing more than to help that happen. If you're ready to take that step to be baptized into Christ and begin that walk, or if you want to talk more about that and study about that, we'd be more than happy to help you. But now is the time for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.